Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, 2 Samuel chapters 23 and 24. Well, we're not going to quite complete our study of 2 Samuel today, but we will next week. You know, I imagine uh, when we started it, you didn't expect we'd be in it almost 11 months. Yeah, you did? But you know, besides these awesome spiritual truths contained here and in the book of Kings, as we're going to start in a couple of weeks, there are tremendous practical lessons and a lot of salient biblical history that allows us to comprehend the words of the prophets and the reasoning for the timing of their oracles. And these studies also prepare us to understand the New Testament and the light that was truly meant to be understood. Now, as I said on numerous occasions, the Old Testament is the indispensable foundation of the New. You cannot reasonably hope to understand the New Testament without knowledge of the Old because the New Testament assumes that you already have that knowledge base. After all, the entire Bible was written in a Hebrew cultural context and was essentially meant to be read by Hebrews. Therefore, the New Testament doesn't explain how the concept of why a king was needed in Israel came about. Or how events led to the advent of King Saul. It doesn't explain what the law is. It doesn't explain what sacrifice or atonement or priesthood is. It doesn't go into detail over God's many attributes. It doesn't repeat the commandments of God or the many prophecies that point towards Messiah. Rather, we're expected to already be familiar with those matters of what was generally common knowledge among the Israelites. Now, most of us are Gentiles who have been graciously invited by the Lord to join ourselves by means of faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus the Christ, into a series of covenants between God and the Hebrews. So while with some personal effort and helpful direction, we can certainly comprehend the entire Bible, it's not going to come by ignoring the first two-thirds of it or by skipping over parts of it the hard parts, are thinking that somehow we can approach the Bible as though it was an Anglo-Saxon document created by enlightened Western Europeans. Thus, when a worshiper of Yeshua HaMashiach skips over the Hebrew Bible and goes directly to the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament, we're going to get some strange ideas of what's being said in the Gospels and especially in Paul's often very difficult letters. 
So let's start off today by completing 2 Samuel chapter 23 and the listing of David's main warriors and officers. Now I'm not going to reread these verses. We read through them last week. Partly because they're kind of tedious. Also, it's full of tongue-twisting names. (laughs) Well, many of which are actually even questionable because this, this is a result of a slew of copyists, copyist errors that have happened over the centuries regarding those names. So open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23, 8. And I just want you to follow along all right, as we move at a goodly pace over this list. Now I mentioned last time that the list was divided into three distinct groups, each group representing a rank or a a position in a chain of command. The first group is the highest rank, the third group the lowest rank. And of course we're talking about rank in relative terms and all of the listed men were commanders and leaders and only the most important ones were recorded as there were hundreds more of them and the top general Joab is also omitted either because David didn't much care for him or because the idea was merely to list everyone below the chief commander who hadn't gotten much recognition anywhere else in the Hebrew documents Now, we need to address right up front that this same list appears in expanded form in 1 Chronicles 11. And the Chronicles list is a little bit different in that there are more names. Now, interestingly, the somewhat parallel one in 1 Chronicles 11 is followed by another list in the following chapter and it consists of those who joined in with David before he became king and while he was still fleeing from the murderous and paranoid King Saul and then there's a third list in chapter 12 of 1 Chronicles that are called the leaders of those mobilized for the army who came to David at Hebron to transfer Saul's kingship over to him meaning David So it seems as though we might have four different periods of David's life that these various lists cover. However, not all scholars even agree with that premise. Now recall that we are exploring a portion of 2 Samuel that's generally labeled as an appendix. In other words, it's kind of a catch-all of miscellaneous information from during David's reign that some ancient editor thought needed to be added for posterity's sake. The reality is that since the Bible doesn't give us calendar dates and it pays little attention to the precise time and order of events, then there is necessarily substantial speculation by later scholars of just what time period each of these lists is referring to. And since at first this historical information was handed down by word of mouth from generation to generation, only later on was it put to pen, 
it's clear that at times there were slightly different traditions that developed. And so some details between these traditions was remembered slightly differently. So rather than our joining in with the various speculations about these lists, we're just going to take a very brief overview of what's actually written and reasonably verifiable. So the chief at the top of the list is Yoshev Bashevet, the Tach Kamoni. He was apparently number one among them all, of course below Joab. He was also known by the name of Adino the Eitzni, we're told. Now we know that Yoshev Bashvet is some kind of a spelling corruption. So we find an entirely different name for him in 1 Chronicles, Yoshevoam. Now his claim to fame was that he killed 800 men in a single encounter. This does not mean that he single-handedly killed 800 men or that 800 men is even the precise body count. Rather, he was in charge of a battle where about 800 of the enemy were killed and he too fought valiantly as an example of bravery for the men. Verse 9 begins, After him, and then says, Eleazar, son of Dodo. And after him means after him in status or rank. So Eleazar reported to Yashavuam. He is remembered for bravely standing against the Philistines, outmanned, fighting so hard and with such stamina and dedication that his hand cramped in a death grip around the shank of his sword, much like a bird of praise claws will involuntarily spring closed on its victim and, and is unable to relax its hold until a certain amount of time goes by and his talons release naturally. And after him, third in the line of command was Shema, son of Age. Now he was especially remembered for protecting a field of lentils from the Philistines. In other words, as was usual for an invader, one of the first things the Philistines went for was their enemy's food supply. And interestingly, the place where this happened was Lehi, the same place that Samson also had a famous altercation with the Philistines that was reported back in Judges 15. This was where that petulant Hebrew strongman slew many Philistine soldiers with only the jawbone of an ass. Well, starting in verse 13, we get a famous story whereby three of David's war heroes overheard David saying how much he desired to have a sip of water from a well in his hometown of Bethlehem, a well that was apparently known for its its sweet clarity. Now this occurred at a time when David was hiding out at the cave of Adullam after he had left the territory of the Philistine king of Gath. Many of the disaffected Judahites of the region who hated Saul 
heard that David was there and they came and joined his militia. Now the Philistines had set up a camp not too far away at a place called the Valley of Rephaim. And these three Israelite warriors who heard David's longing for this water fought their way past the Philistines, journeyed to Bethlehem, retrieved the water, fought their way back through the Philistines and gave the water to David. Now, the rabbis say that David never actually requested the water. It was just that at an idle time he merely reminisced about this wonderfully tasting water from a certain well in the city of his birth. His soldiers surprised him by their courageous, maybe foolhardy, action of braving the enemy and bringing it to him. But imagine this. Upon receiving this precious gift so dearly won, David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out on the ground to God as a kind of drink offering, a libation offering, and then said that to drink that water would have been as though he was drinking the blood of those three warriors. There is no record of an altar at the cave of Adullam, and most certainly there was none there. So David wasn't making any kind of a formal offering to God. David's rationale is actually quite sound. His men had risked their lives to get David something as trivial as water that tasted better than the water they had readily available. Nicer tasting water is not worth endangering life. Since life was in the blood and the men had risked their blood to obtain the water, that it would have been as though David was drinking their blood if he drank that water that had been needlessly attained at such a potentially high cost. As a matter of fact, it probably cost the lives of several Philistines. And therefore, he poured it out into the ground as a sign of refusal to do wrong before Jehovah. Unfortunately, this is not a pious side of David that we're going to see very often after he becomes king over Israel and Judah. Well, verse 18 begins the listing of the second rank of warrior heroes. And first listed among that group is Avishai, who is David's nephew through his sister Zeruiah. Now, Avishai is Joab's brother. Joab, remember, is the general of the army. Another of this same rank is Baniah. And the rabbis say that although we're told at the end of verse 17 that the second rank consists of three men, only two are listed. At least in the surviving documents that, as we have them today, that's all we've got. Some think that third hero was probably Azahel who was the brother of Avishai and Joab, who was killed by Abner. I suppose this is possible, but we do find Azahel listed as the first name of the third rank of heroes. So I have my doubts about that. I also think it's important to note that there is no implication in this list that the men who are listed were still alive 
at the time that this list was compiled. In every case of these lists, of the four I mentioned, these lists are looking back into time. So in the same way that we can have, say, a valid list of all the United States presidents, we can do so without regard to whether they're still living, because that's not the point of the list. Well, Abishai held the highest status of this second group, consisting of himself, Banya, possibly Azahel. His most heroic moment is remembered, is the time that he killed 300 men. Again, like the, with the leader of the first rank, Yashfuam. He's not claiming that he single-handedly killed 300 men, but rather he led the battle and was himself especially valiant and courageous in victory. And by the way, who that enemy was that they battled against, we're not told. Now for some reason, Banya is given quite a bit of attention. Probably because he was a trusted favorite of David and he led David's personal bodyguard. Now interestingly, First Chronicles explains that Banya's father was Yehoyada, who was a priest. So we can reasonably assume that Banya was a Levite. And so being a warrior and the king's chief bodyguard is kind of an unusual occupation for him. Until we understand that the priesthood was barely functional in these days and the Levites were forced to find other lines of work. Now the stories that were chosen to best characterize Benaiah are his killing two men from Moab, a lion in a pit, and a large Egyptian man. Now no doubt the first two mentioned exploits were chosen because of the, the common theme of being involved with a lion. Now. Despite the many biblical translations and renderings of verse 20 about the nature of these two Moabite men, the complete Jewish Bible does probably the best job by explaining them as lion-hearted men. The reason is that the Hebrew word being used is Ariel, which means Lion of El. Lion, however, is simply Ari in Hebrew. But the original Hebrew in this passage adds the word El to it. El is the highest god of any nation's gods. So the words hearted or men don't even exist in this verse. Rather, they're added by translators as a means to to try to get to the sense of it. The Hebrew is actually Ariel Moaf, most literally meaning Lions of Moab's El. It's assumed from the context then that it's speaking of men, warriors on behalf of Moab's El, not a pair of lions. However, in the next verse, where, where Banya kills a lion in a pit, it is indeed the Hebrew word Ari, a lion, an animal lion. So these two verses together 
form a kind of memorable play on words that was so common um, in ancient oral tradition. In the first case, this is about killing an enemy on the battlefield. In the second case, we are apparently dealing with a hungry lion that has been driven to a village during an especially snowy winter and thus is willing to take unusual risks to find food. Unluckily, he falls into somebody's water cistern. But obviously he can't remain there. The brave Baniaz called to the scene. He kills this dangerous cat. So we have a tradition created whereby Baniaz shows himself fearless against man and beast. This is the picture of the ultimate Middle Eastern warrior hero. Then finally he fights what is essentially a giant. But but rather than the more typical Philistine giant, this one's an Egyptian. And just as David used only a shepherd's sling to kill Goliath and then beheaded him, with the Philistine giant's own weapon, so Baniah uses only a stick to disarm the Egyptian giant and then kills him with his own spear. One also remembers David's famous encounter with a lion, as with Baniah, and even that, well, David became known as the Lion of Judah. No wonder David chose this man to be his chief of his personal royal guard, even over his own family members. But one cannot also help but wonder how much of Benia's legendary exploits were kind of shaped for just this kind of David connection. It would have been perfectly normal for that era to exaggerate a little bit for effect. Well, in this long list of the third rank are some na- some familiar names. One name of importance is Eliam, who was Bathsheba's father. And along with him is listed Akitophel, Bathsheba's grandfather. The list even includes, I think strangely, the ill-fated Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, whom David had murdered. Now I think when we see the high status of Eliam and Uriah, such that they are even assigned hero-warrior status, it only adds to David's depravity and selfishness that he would show such disrespect by having illicit sex with Eliam's daughter and then to have such a valuable warrior leader Uriah, Eliam's son-in-law, assassinated for no other reason than David wanted Uriah's wife as his own. David didn't desire Bathsheba because of some kind of important political alliance or any kind of a political move that in the long run might be beneficial for Israel. It was because he was entranced with her beauty and he only wanted to satisfy his sexual thirst.
that her husband, father, and grandfather were some of David's closest advisors and loyal war commanders apparently meant nothing to him. Let's move on to the final chapter of 2 Samuel. We're going to read it all. Page 364 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The anger of Adonai blazed up against Israel, so he moved David to act against them by saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go systematically through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba. Take a census of the population so that I can know how many people there are. And Joab said to the king, May Adonai your God add to the people a hundredfold, no matter how many there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king take pleasure in doing this? However, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the army officers. So Joab and the army officers went out from the king's presence to take a census of the people of Israel. Well, they crossed over the Jordan, pitched camp in Aroer, to the, to the south of the city in the Wadi of Gad, went on to Yatzer, came to Gilead, and continued to the land of Tachtim Hodshi. Then they arrived at Danyaan, went around to Sidon, and came to the stronghold of Sor. They went to the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and finished in the south of Judah and at Beersheba. And when they were done doing, uh, when they were done going through all the land, they came back to Jerusalem. It had taken nine months and twenty days. Yoav reported the results of the census to the king. There were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men who could handle the sword, while the men of Judah numbered five hundred thousand. But after he had taken the census, David was conscience stricken. David said. To Adonai, I have greatly sinned in what I've done, but now, Adonai, please put aside your servant's sin, for I have done a very foolish thing. And when David got up in the morning, this word of Adonai came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David that this is what Adonai says I am giving you a choice of three punishments. Choose one of them, and I will execute it against you. And Gad came to David and told him, and he said, Do you want seven years of famine in your land? Or do you want to flee before your enemies for three months while they pursue you? Or do you want three days of plague in your land? Think about it. Tell me what to answer the one who sends me. And David said to Gad, This is very hard for me. Let us fall into the hand of Adonai because his mercies are great rather than have me fall into the hands of man. So Adonai sent a plague upon Israel from that morning until the end of the specified time. 70,000 of the people died between Dan and Beersheba. But when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, Adonai changed his mind about causing such distress and said to the angel destroying the people, Enough! Now withdraw your hand. And the angel of Adonai was at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. 
Now David spoke to Adonai when he saw the angel striking the people and he said, Here, I have sinned. I have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please, let your hand be against me and against my father's family. Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go, set up an altar to Adonai on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. David went up and did what Gad had said as Adonai had ordered. Arunah looked out and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arunah went out and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And then Arunah said, Why has my lord king come to his servant? And Adonai said, To buy your threshing floor in order to build an altar to Adonai so that the plague will be lifted from the people. And Arunah said to David, let my lord the king take, offer up anything that seems good to him. Here, here's the oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing sledges, the yokes for the oxen as firewood. All of this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And then Arunah said to the king, May Adonai your God accept you. But the king said to Arunah, No, I insist on buying it from you at a price. I refuse to offer Adonai my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David brought about the threshing floor and the oxen for one and one quarter pounds of silver shekels. And then David built an altar to Adonai there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, Adonai took pity on the land and lifted the plague from Israel. Now let me comment immediately that we're going to see a great deal of figurative speech concerning the Lord in these passages. That is, we see intense human emotions ascribed to Jehovah. And we must be aware that even the greatest and most ancient Hebrew sages spoke eloquently that anger, jealousy, sadness, joy, and so on, when applied to God, are merely figures of speech. As physical creatures, we are quite limited in thought and vocabulary on how to characterize the nature of God's divine decisions and and His actions. And we have no other means to communicate about those decisions and actions other than to describe them in common human terms. Thus the first word of this chapter is, in English at least, anger. Anger. And interestingly, that's not the literal word of this opening phrase. Rather, it says that Jehovah's nostrils, his off, burned. So that figurative speech I was warning you about is even more figurative than it appears on the surface. Burning nostrils is, of course, a figurative Middle Eastern expression indicating extreme anger. But it's important to note that this severe divine dissatisfaction is in the context for everything that's going to happen now. Thus, the census and God's anger are inseparable in this story. 
What we must also notice as we look back upon what we've learned from the Hebrew Bible to this point is that invariably God's anger is provoked by sin. Which we could define as the disobedience of His people or the mistreatment of His people by people who aren't His people. The ancient Jewish sages who tend to have a ready answer for every obscure thing in the Bible, by the way, are actually flummoxed by this opening verse. It's because there's no reason given for God's high level of anger against His people Israel. There's no end to the speculation of what it might be. And we're even going to consider a couple of possibilities, but this this side of heaven, we're never going to know for sure. Now, of the many views on this subject, a couple of them stand out. One is that whatever the nation's sin, it must have been invisible to David or he wouldn't have permitted such a thing to happen. Thus, chief among the unspoken, hidden sins that might have caused the problem is that the people didn't beseech David to build a temple. Had had they done so, it would have been built during David's and not Solomon's time and and God's Ark of the Covenant would not have resided unceremoniously in a makeshift tent for decades while the Israelites lived in permanent homes. Another line of thought about this is more practical. It is that God's wrath was the result of the rebellion of Sheva that had gone unpunished. And such a lack of punishment was all the more terrible because the people were severely punished for Absalom's rebellion and then they turned right around and rebelled against God's anointed again not long afterward. Now usually, the parallel account of the last couple of chapters of 2 Samuel that appears in 1 Chronicles fills in some of the gaping holes for us and answers many questions. Not in this case. 1 Chronicles is equally silent on the nature of David's trespass in ordering a census, in addition to whatever the Israelite nation's crime was. I don't really advocate for any particular solution for the exact reason for God's anger first against Israel and then against David that resulted from this census. However, in the matter of David's census and the punishment that came as a result of it, there's a rather innovative possibility that a modern Christian scholar has come up with, and I think it's at least worthy of consideration, because it explains the matter in the context of violated Torah principles. And we're going to talk about that when we get there. But first let's straighten out a common misconception about the very first verse of this chapter. It is usually worded 
such that we have Yehovah deciding to take his wrath out on his people by directly instructing David to go and take a census of the people. That's not really what's meant here. What is meant is very mysterious. It is that God incited David to do something wrong and hurtful to the people of Israel and that the thought that David came up with was to order a census. What is so wrong about a census is itself not so straightforward. But next week we're going to take a stab at it. The idea is that God did with David what he had done at times with Saul and even with Pharaoh. He led them and incited them to do something that would harm the Israelites. Now we often like to invoke our Christianese and say in a sweeping statement that God does not ever override our free will or that God would never incite anyone to do something evil. Well, this passage concerning David is but one of several in the Bible that refutes that notion. More often than not, when God wants to punish His people, He'll use someone or some nation to do it. In other words, only rarely is the punishment of God's people a a cosmic, supernatural event, you know, like the destruction of Sodom. The Lord used the emperor of Assyria to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. He used Nebuchadnezzar to punish the southern kingdom of Israel. He of uh, Judah rather. He used the king Cyrus king of Persia to punish the people who overly punished his people. So on and so forth. Thus we saw in 2 Samuel that David often regarded the defeats and calamities of war or domestic trouble in his kingdom or in his family as simply the action of God punishing him using men as his earthly proxies. And I think this is a God principle that hasn't changed one iota even since the advent of Yeshua. Thus as regards verse 1 It's not God saying to David, go and do a census. Rather, it is David relaying a thought that came to his mind in response to God's excitement of David's evil inclination by saying to his commander, go and do a census. Now you may question where I come up with that line of reasoning, But if we go to the parallel account of this event in 1 Chronicles 21.1 we find these words. The adversary now rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Ooh. So in 2 Samuel 24 we have God inciting David. In 1 Chronicles 21, it's the adversary that rises up in David. 
Most Bible versions, by the way, won't say adversary, but rather Satan. Satan's a Hebrew word that means adversary. And only late in history did it ever become a proper name for the devil. Now remember what I told you at the outset of this chapter. We're going to see a lot of figurative speech here. And the author of these verses is trying to find the words where there are no words to explain how David's physical action was spiritually caused. And yet, it was an evil action that took its cue from David's own thoughts. I mean, this is pretty mysterious stuff that we believers contend with even today. Well, see, the answer lies in the principle of the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination that resides within all humans alongside the good inclination, the Yetzer Tov. Our good inclinations are where godly and righteous thoughts occur. Our evil inclinations are where our bad and wrong thoughts occur. With redemption, we have the capacity to bring our evil inclinations under Holy Spirit control. But we still often fail. Because underneath it all, we still like it. We give in to our evil inclinations because we like them. And that failure to control our evil inclination causes us to sin. And that is basically what's happening here with David. He's not being influenced by Jehovah really to do anything outside of his normal character. It's just that the Lord is going to use that bad side of David, the Yetzer Harah where Satan hangs out, as a vehicle to bring just punishment to the people of Israel. Thus David calls his general of the army, Yoaf, and he tells him to count, go and count the people. Interestingly, David puts it in terms of counting Israel and Judah. Even though Israel is theoretically a unified kingdom under David, in reality, Israel and Judah are two separate entities being ruled over by one king. At least that's how they see themselves. And further, when David says, go and take a census, what it literally says is, go around In Hebrew, the word being translated is shoot, shoot. It's a unique word, not found often in the Bible, but one place that it is found and and rightfully offers a very good parallel to get the, the correct sense of it is in the book of Job. In Job 1.7, it says, Adonai asked the adversary... Where are you coming from? And the adversary answered Adonai from roaming around the earth, wandering here and there. 
where it says roaming around in the complete Jewish Bible. Other versions might say to and fro. Others might say going around. These are all attempts to translate the Hebrew word shoot. But what we find is that in the same way that a Hebrew word for darkness is choshek, choshek is not a benign form of darkness, but rather it's an evil form of darkness. Thus the Hebrew word shut, going around, roaming, isn't a benign stroll. It carries with it an ominous, evil undertone. So right away we know that when David says to shoot, to go around and carry out a census, this is not going to be good. And what he's doing is going to lead to big trouble. Now David's military commander, Joab, whose reputation is certainly not that of a cautious or an upright man, understands that politically speaking, performing a census of the people is a provocative act on David's part and nothing good can come out of it. So he comes to David and he questions his order to perform a census. And that's where we'll continue with this next week in the book, second book of Samuel, uh, the book of Second Samuel, okay?